The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Welcome back to the Brandon Peter Show and Last summer of 82 at 40. A weekend by weekend look at the movies released during the summer of that year. Thank you for sticking with us and coming back week to week if you are one of those people and I'm not talking to just the ether. Uh, as always, along for the journey from Forbes, it's Scott Mendelson. Always a pleasure. Uh, this episode will be looking at the first weekend of June 1982, the 4th through the 6th. This is our second month. We've made it through May. We're still alive. We're, we're still going down this road, Scott. The adventure continues. If you're watching this podcast, you are the resistance. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, one, there, the one interesting part of a mediocre film. Right. This is true. I, I got a note here at the top that uh, there's a movie that in a couple spots was credited as being from this weekend, but is not from further research called The Chosen. It was released at a festival in 1981, which we're going wide releases and stuff. So something hit a festival the year before and gets a wide release during the summer. We're going to cover it. But it had an April 30th United States release date. So somewhere along the line, something spread and, and has it this weekend. But I'm not counting it. I've knocked out The Chosen. It no was mercy. not. It was not The Chosen. <laughs> I'm sorry. The Chosen. You're not. You're not sorry. No, I'm not. But now let's take a look at the news of the moment here. It's the news of the moment. Linkage on the outside, high ascent on the inside. Those two now heads apart. Gaining ground on the rail is Illuminate. On the outside, here comes Gato del Sol, but they're far back. Conquistador Cielo, complete control. This Belmont Stakes has the field by 15 lengths, maybe 20 lengths. Gato del Sol is second. This week, Oakland A's left fielder Ricky Henderson steals two bases in a 3-2 win over the Boston Red Sox to become the fastest to reach 50 stolen bases in a Major League Baseball season. Did he try to murder the Queen of England at one point? Ricky Henderson? Or am I thinking of a different baseball player? He steals bases, not royalty. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of a naked gun joke. And I probably got the oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Now, now I'm going to have to look that up. Nice one, Mr. Drebin, or Sergeant okay. Drebin. So uh, the 55th National Spelling Bee, uh, Molly Devaney wins, and she won on the word psoriasis. Oh, my. That begins with a P, Scott. I should have had does. you spell it. I should have <laughs> had you try to spell it. Ah, it's my mistake. Uh, I very quietly type and cheat. There you go. Yeah, that's true. He's like, hold on a moment. Let me <clears throat> clear my clear my throat. Uh, the the uh, 114th Belmont uh, Lafitte Pinquet Jr. aboard Conquistador Cielo Cello, I don't know, wins at two minutes twenty eight seconds. 
the waterfront streetcar begins operating in Seattle this week. 30,000 Israeli troops invade Lebanon to drive out the PLO. PLO, it must go. PLO, it must go. If that's some huge tragic event, I just joked at your... I, I apologize, but we're going through past news. Make fun of America, please. Um <laughs> The third, at the 36 Tony Awards, Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, and nine won awards. Uh, the French Open's ten, men's tennis. Mats Willander of Sweden wins his first career Grand Slam title, beating Guillermo Vilas of Argentina. The scores were 1-6, 7-6, 6-0, and 6-4. And we had a couple birthdays. Uh, Justine Hennin, athlete of tennis, I think, and Jewel State. From the show Firefly, she was born this week in 1982, which means I'm older than them. (laughs) All right, Scott, our first movie that we are going to discuss this week, Hanky Pinky. And here's a late local news wrap-up. Tonight there was murder at a Midtown hotel. We'll have film in a moment. When you're wanted for a murder you didn't commit... You know, things like this don't happen to me. I don't even get parking tickets. Chased for secrets you didn't steal. Get a load of the nut in the bathroom. That is the nut, Jimmy. That's the Jordan guy. Hold it! And running from people who want to kill you. The worst mistake you can make is falling in love. Meet Michael Jordan and his mistake. Columbia Pictures presents Gene Wilder. Goodbye. I have no alibi. I was on TV. Don't you understand? If I stand still, I'm going to get jailed for life or they're going to kill me. And Gilda Radner. I I hope everything works out. Where are you going? You can't go. Don't blame this one on me, too. In Hanky Panky. Is that your call, lady? Oh, my aunt is, um, uh, deaf mute. Isn't that right, Auntie? I thought you said she couldn't hear. She, she reads lips. I see a rock! Oh. I am doing something! I'm crashing an airplane! Hanky Panky. Something funny's going on here. Directed by the, i sad to say it, the now late Sidney Poitier. Uh, it's Ooh. his follow-up to Stir Crazy. Written by Henry Rosenbaum and David Taylor. Starring... Gene Wilder, Gilda Radner, and Kathleen Quinlan. A completely innocent man, Michael Jordan, with an two O's, is drawn into a web of government secrets when a girl carrying a mysterious package gets into a taxi with him. When she's later murdered, Michael becomes the chief suspect and goes on the run. This is your basic plot of Gene Wilder movies. Yeah, he seemed to have a handful of... of- you know, very comedic Hitchcock movies. You know, yes, yeah. Wrong they, man on the run. Yep, with a MacGuffin um, that, who cares? <laughs> this is not one of the better ones. No. I was actually, you know, I'll be honest, this was a blind spot. I, I had not seen this. I was spot, looking but, forward to this one. This is the yeah, one I hadn't too. seen this week, yeah. But this this did not do anything for me. It is. It feels very small. It feels like mostly an excuse for the two leads just to riff together. I mean, they, you know, let me state the obvious Wilder and Radner have obvious chemistry. This is where they met, uh, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Which led to her divorce. Yeah. Which led to their marriage. 
Yeah. All because Richard, <laughs> all because Richard Pryor backed out of this because it was prepped as a Gene Wilder Richard Pryor team up, and he backed out, and they decided let's go with Gilda Radner. So Gilda Radner was the James Garner of Hanky Banky. Yes. <laughs> and I joked that five people on Earth will get. But no, it's 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 a very cut and dry. What you see is what you get. Picture. It looks nice. You know, it's oh, I it was shot on film. It looked like a real movie. You know, not to be a running joke on that, but it's not particularly funny. It's not particularly quirky. It feels like a placeholder. Yeah. It, it exists because Stir Crazy was incredibly successful. It made $109 million. That was, yeah, that was a gangbusters movie. Yeah, that people huge, forget like, about yeah. um, In 1980, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I really don't have that much to say about it other than it's it's sort of the other one. Yeah. And it's, yeah, like I said, like I watched this twice for this because the first time I was having trouble keeping my, keeping my like attention or just like my mind would wander. And I'm like, what is this? And I'm just uninteresting. Like I watched it once and then the next day forgot whatever the MacGuffin was about yeah. it. Like what was in the package or whatever. And I like, like Kathleen Quinlan's good. There's a story here with him and Quinlan, but then you put the two comedic people together and there's no, Nobody's really the straight person. Yeah, there's no fish out of water element because they're both comedic characters in a comedic situation. And I'll tell you what, one of the best people comedically go nuts, crazy, scream is Gene Wilder. Yeah, They abuse it to all hell in this movie and it becomes just boring and annoying. Because well, he I... talks like this the whole movie every five minutes. This... I think... Oh. <laughs> I think it's a situation and yeah. almost every screen comic has a movie or two like this where someone says, okay, well just put the camera at them and, and there will be laughs. You know, the Ex- uh, yeah. you know, think of, you know, William Robin Williams and Billy Crystal's father's day, for example, or, uh, you know, some of the lesser Adam Sandler pictures. You guys are funny where, are you? Yeah. you know, and the idea is that, Oh, well he was funny in these movies. Ergo, we don't need to do anything other than show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and obviously, maybe Wilder's not the best at improv because all he's go to is the screaming. It's the, yeah. it's the you lose, good day, sir, from Willy Wonka <laughs> on repeat, like yeah. the whole movie, like every scene has him screaming mad with his eyes bugging out, and it's like that works for a scene and maybe a reprisal. But you do it every single scene of the movie. It is tiresome. Like Gilda Radner gets overshadowed by it. She's fine here. Like it's funny. This is like the most normal she kind of feels, despite being yes. used comedically. She's a, she's a straight, relatively speaking, she's a straight woman. She's, she's a romantic foil. She's an prize to be won. Well, so yeah, to speak. she's put as the like hot babe type character in the movie, and I don't remember her ever being used that way. I have no objection, but nonetheless. No, no, um, I don't no object. I'm just saying for type, you know, these are things. I'm like just people, being a lech. People got to realize, like, th- this is a thing people do in Hollywood even today. Like, th- this is like a a type. You have look for types, all this stuff. But like I say, like, hot babe type, that's what they were putting her in. Like, she's his yeah. romantic foil. They got to look good together, and they, they do her up in that business, kind of like the you know, power suit attire. Um, and give her a more genuine. She's more the straight person than him, but she's still quite goofy. 
And I have to wonder to what extent Wilder knew that this film was on autopilot because the next two pictures he made, he directed them. Yeah. Uh, he followed this up with the comparatively against type woman in red. And then he directed a film with Gildner Render called uh, Haunted Honeymoon, which I remember that one. Good. Yeah. And then I think, you know, maybe as a way to quote unquote get back his mojo, he does another Richard Pryor film in 1989, Snow Evil, Evil, mm-hmm. where he plays, I think he's the one of them's deaf, one of them's blind, and right. they both quote unquote hear slash witness a murder. Mm-hmm. It's not good, but it's clearly an attempt to get back to the, you know, these the silver streak slash dirt crazy peak. Yes. Um and you know, as much as we all adore Gene Wilder, he really was never a box office dynamo other than a few random, not random, a few very, you know, polished, you know, uh, uh, blazing saddles, uh, uh, obviously Silver Streak and Stir Crazy. Young and Frankenstein. Yes, Young Frankenstein. I, I think you could compare his acting to that of the auteur director period of the 70s where all of them didn't make it out and some of them did yeah. these kind of fizzle, like a William Friedkin. Huge yeah. in the seventies, has some eighties stuff, but by the time the nineties hits, like who's going to blue chips because Freakin directed it? <laughs> you know, like it, it kind of maybe follows that a little bit. Interestingly enough, and you know, not to just make this a random, you know, tour through his filmography, but in terms of you know esteemed actors directing comedy pictures, the follow up to See No Evil, Hear No Evil was a movie called Funny About Love, which was a paternity comedy directed by Leonard Nimoy. Oh, okay. During I like the direct comedies, directed, oddly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he had a run of, of relatively successful studio programmers. Obviously, you know, he directed Three Men and a Baby, which is the biggest grossing film of 1987. Yeah. You know, you're not going off topic, Scott. You're connecting this week <laughs> in a way. Fair so, enough. So, yeah. Um, but why is it called Hanky Panky? Was it just one of those, ah, it's a silly term, slap it on the comedy movie? Yes. I think. If I had to take a guess, the original script title was something slightly more on the nose in terms of whatever the movie's about, mm-hmm. and if they changed it to something kind of generic, maybe you know they wanted people to think that there was more risque content. I don't know, mm-hmm. but it does feel very much like a it was like East final... by Southeast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, it's 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 not a good picture. No, I I was very disappointed. I like this is going to be at least like at worst like some average with a couple good laughs. There's no good laughs. There's like seeing Jim Wilder lose his shit once is amusing. And then it just keeps going and going in a movie that doesn't need it, warrant it. But I, I don't know. Poitier is probably like, do your thing, Gene. We just count them dollars, count them stir crazy dollars. The good news is by default, it is not the worst film Cindy Poitier ever directed. Nope. Because unfortunately his final film as a director was Bill Cosby's ghost dad. A film that my family saw at a free sneak preview when I was, you know, I was like 10. Mm-hmm. That was so bad that A, I knew it was bad even though I was 10 years old. That should tell you something right there. Yeah. And B, my mother, who was very deadpan, but, you know, usually wasn't overly farcical in terms of her humor, mm-hmm. very loudly lambasted that it was a free screening and she still felt ripped off. Right. I think I um, saw that one in the theater too. I remember, oddly enough, now you bring it up, Ghost Dad. It's Sidney Poitier. We're still on topic. <laughs> Oddly enough, Ghost Dad and Cosby's other one, Leonard Part Six, which at least is going for it. Both had Ponderosa tie-ins. Odd, like weirdly, <laughs> like there was. I don't know why you'd want to associate Ghost Dad with your met, but 
I remember Ponderosa having Leonard Part Six like paper menu. Like there was something Leonard Part Six there and Ghost Dad. I'm like, it was weird. Those are times though, you know, different times. Uh, at, at the risk of being vulgar, you know, I remember as the various scandals involving Bill Cosby became more than just dark whispers in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, you know, as a movie guy, I'm like, oh no, how will I ever be able to enjoy such great films as Leonard Part Six and Jack and Ghost Dad? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, those Cosby films that I could never just quite enjoy again. Like, oh no. Or The Devil and Max Devlin. Oh, yeah. Which, again, is a movie that I saw when I was very young. And when just the idea of seeing a new live action movie was still, you know, fun. But even when I was like, you know, seven, I knew it wasn't a good picture. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, in, in his defense, Gene Wilder knew this wasn't a good picture either, citing it in his lifetime as one of his worst movies. Interesting. Scott and Brandon agree with you, Gene. <laughs> yes, we do. Tuesday, Lucille Ball takes a special one-hour look at America's favorite comedy, and all your old favorites will be there. Oh, my God! For the best of Three's Company. Then, Jennifer's the target of an insurance fraud that turns to murder, heart to heart. Tuesday on ABC. Let's head on over to the TV land. Uh, that's where that's where Cosby hits you hard, because you cannot go yes. back to the Cosby show. Uh, but the ratings, the top ten this week, Scott, what do you think took number one? You've been, oh, you've been following these now for a month. Not well. Uh, they change uh, oddly enough differently. Uh, not not as uh, consistent as the Casey Kasem Blues is in the top ten, I hope. It is. Oh, okay. So, Scott, uh, number one is Too Close for Comfort on ABC. Hill Street yeah. Blues finished out number two on Woo, ABC. I was close. Bum, bum, bum. Be careful out there. Uh Number three, Heart to Heart, jumping up on ABC. Four, Three's Company on ABC. Five has a 60 Minutes on CBS. They made the top ten again. Good job, CBS. Uh, MASH at number six from CBS. Number seven, Quincy on NBC. Number eight, Give Me a Break on NBC. Number nine, Different Strokes on NBC. And then finally, House Calls on CBS finishes the top ten. I don't remember House Calls. Uh, but NBC just a dominant showing every week. They seem to, seem yeah. to and, and then uh, you know, ABC's got a couple big guns. I like Mash is on CBS, but Mash has not been in the top ten every time. But we are in June now, so I would believe the season has got to be over or close to, or maybe one of them's a summer show. I'm not doing TV research. We're doing film research with added TV fun stuff on the side with these so uh, the mash finale would air in february 83 so we're oh we're in the, the final yeah um as as many of you probably know the finale for mash uh, set a record for a a non you know a piece of fiction on television in terms of ratings mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like the super bowl or the olympics or whatever right. not only was it watched by like 100 million people there's a, a goofy bit of trivia that i always enjoy which is that the show, the finale ran for two and a half hours, including commercials. And when it was over, so many people ran to the bathroom that it actually caused plumbing problems nationwide. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, that's your mass trivia for the day. Right. Matt, and I love that it was a big thing for a while, like when a show would finish, were they going to beat MASH? I think the last yeah. time they thought that was Seinfeld. Yes, that was the last one that had shot. I now. think they, they thought Cheers might do it. 
and then they thought Seinfeld might do it. But the thing is that they never took it apart, and they're always behind when keeping records on things is people taping it and watching yeah. it later. And more people might have, but it wasn't tracked. It, they don't have the accurate well, tracking. To be fair, how many people had a VCR in 1983? Yeah. Well, yeah, and not not Again, many. I, I don't know. Yeah. Exactly, but you're, this uh, is about a 20-year difference, a little less than, but TV oh, watching... I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. Yeah, TV watching habits change, and there was more yeah. on compared with Seinfeld. You know, Seinfeld's numbers lower might be more impressive that it pulled that many people away from cable stations than there was a lot more competition for Seinfeld that night than there was uh, MASH when MASH... That's actually an interesting point that I've never considered. Yeah, I mean, we talk about this in terms of streaming, there being a lot more stuff. But back here, we had ABC, NBC, and PBS. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, why we talking about movies about yes, you know, inflation means that films sold fewer tickets, yada yada yada. But you mm-hmm. also have far less competition. You know, right. obviously for something in the eighties, and certainly even more so, or even less so, but to a certain extent, you know, nineties and so on. You know, it's 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 somebody who didn't even like Mash was probably watching that finale that night because pff, there was nothing else on. And that's Absolutely. what people would—that's what people would be talking about at work the next day. So if you want to chime in, here you go. Not hate watching, just nothing else on. I don't want to read a book. I want to watch TV. This is going to be the event people talk about. Fine. Or someone who hadn't watched. My, yeah, it's a long. That's another story. TV stuff. I, re- I remember that. You know that wonderful feeling of everyone watching the same thing and talking about it at school the next morning. Water cooler. Or lockers, yeah. or you know, homeroom discussion. I, I mean, mean, yeah, one of them of, that always sticks out was Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. which was a rare case of a the two hour season premiere. Mm-hmm. It was a rare case of a syndicated show ending up in equivalent to the top ten for the week. And if you went by, you know, my school, everyone watched it the previous night, even if right. you weren't a Trekkie. You know, my teacher, you know, I was in sixth grade. My teacher watched it just out of curiosity and had a blast with it. Yeah. Um, well, Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek, apparently. So yeah, it's the one that holds up for modern audience is the best. Yeah. I, will, I will say that. I I will say this. This is I the water cooler. The one of the toughest ones ever was when I was in sixth grade. The premiere of Lois and Clark: The New Adventures of Superman and oh, Sequest DSV on the same night. Sequest and. You had to watch, you, like, most people are like, I haven't watched the other one yet. What did you watch? Which one did you watch last night? I taped this one and watched, oh, no, we'll get back together on Tuesday. Watch it tonight. <laughs> well, I think Lois, I, uh, Lois and Clark was, was a two-part, right? 93. Yeah, they were both, I think they were both two-parts. Were they both two-parts? Okay. Yeah, I think they were both two-hour shows. Okay. And honestly, I never watched Sequest. And in retrospect, you know, the only reason I wa- got into Lois and Clark is that I was I was at a, an amusement park that day, it was Cedar Point, and my dad just happened to make the decision to take Lois and Clark for me. Okay, See, and, I didn't. I didn't. So there's the thing too. Like, I watched Sequest the night it came out, and the next morning, someone's like, "Did you watch Superman?" I'm like, Superman? I didn't know there was a Superman show. <laughs> I was like, Superman. Well, what? for a while, Sequest was kicking its ass, Lois and Clark's ass in the ratings. Superman was the hype, or Sequest was the hype show. Roy Scheider yeah. was doing TV. That was big. It was, was going to be Star- Spielberg. Star Trek Underwater. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Then it just kind of lost its momentum. Ran three seasons uh, and done. Lois and Clark went four. Yeah. But, Which also lost its momentum, but that's another conversation. It is another. Um, Lois and Clark might be the case of like that show had a great first season and then. Oh, yeah. Yes. 
that's part of it is the first season was fantastic, but they kind of, without going into details, they kind of put all their chips on the table by season one. Right. Um, and they really had, I would argue, very little, not much less to go. To be fair, season three was interesting because, spoiler, I guess, for a 30-year-old television show, um, you know, she discovers, his, you know, she figures out his identity at the end of season two, mm-hmm. which is revealed at the beginning of season three. And all of season three is sort of her coming to terms with that. And, and right. frankly, going through some, you know, old, you know, already rehashed plots, but with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because, again, we, we hadn't really seen a romantic couple where where she knew his identity and seeing trying to make that work yeah. that was that was new back then well it was funny it ran through some of the same pitfalls the show it was aping moonlighting did during its yes. run too it's kind of yes. funny they're like oh and you had the guideline to not do certain things and you fell into them anyway yeah the old line was that you know once the couple gets together the show goes off a cliff mm-hmm. um but i mean i don't i don't know if that's actually true i mean it's 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 at some point, you have to get them together. Otherwise, it's just annoying. Yeah, yeah. You, you can only hold it so long. You know, and it's, it's not like the X-Files where you have lots of other business going on that can sort of, oh, maybe they'll flirt a little bit in this episode. Right. Um, but Lois and Clark did give us my favorite Lois Lane, Terry Hatcher. Yes. Uh, honestly, I mean, off-screen behavior notwithstanding, Dean Cain is a wonderful Clark Kent. He's not bad. Um and Jonathan Shee's a great Lex Luthor. Oh, yeah. No, he uh, was a really good Lex um, Luthor. I liked him. I mean, honestly, especially in the first season, everybody on that show was good. Yeah. Oh, uh, Lane Smith was a good Perry White. Yeah. I actually, um, they, they didn't use him a whole, like, uh, Smallville. Michael McKean, awesome Perry yeah. White for when they had, like, I was like, this is just brilliant. Like, oh, yeah, that's, that's fun good casting. casting. That's fun casting. It works. Yeah. Like, oh, my gosh. So, um, But, yeah. um. But yeah, we're on the TV of 1982. Uh, nice. But yeah, but yeah, we'll, we'll continue TV conversations as these go. In Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg went beyond our world. Now, within the safety and comfort of an average home, Good night. he crosses a frightening new threshold. What is it? Into another world. Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. Poltergeist rated PG starts Friday at a theater near you. Check your local newspaper for. But our next movie for 1982 is Poltergeist. This one is directed by Toby Hooper, written by Steven Spielberg, Michael Grace, and Mark Victor, starring Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson, Heather or Heather O'Rourke, Zelda Rubinstein, Richard Lawson, and Beatrice Strait. A family's home is haunted by a host of demonic ghosts. This is a banger right here. Rated oh, yeah. PG. This is the this is the Spielberg thing of like pushing the limits of the PG. That was when the PG meant something, damn it. <laughs> he had to earn that PG. Um yeah, it's it's you know that you don't I imagine if you're listening to a podcast of this nature, you don't need us to tell you that Poltergeist is great. Oh no, um, it, it holds up. I just showed <laughs> I showed it to my son uh last year for the first time. Yeah, it holds up. And it's such a, you know, obviously in retrospect, we've seen it, you know, the formula done any number of times, but was it the first big haunted house, but what if suburbia movie? I 
believe so. Uh, it was it was Spielberg's fascination of the suburbia. I yeah. mean, he had we'll talk about E.T. later this month. Uh, Gremlins, uh, like, you know, just there, there's something there that he's prying into that it's usually the haunted house. It's usually some old mansion. Um, yeah. Just a few years earlier, we had like, the, you know, there's a changeling that's always there. Um, I can't think of normal yeah, I think house. that was the hook, is that you had yeah. a haunted house movie in a conventional, stereotypical 80s nuclear family, you know, lot mm-hmm. in yeah. the middle of, of, you know, Reagan's America, so to speak. Right. It's, it's another way in which Spielberg was as much about interrogating the 1980s and and the nostalgia yada 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 as he was simply exploiting it right and i think to an extent i don't know to what extent he did exploit it it's something you know he made films in the 80s and they had to be set in the 80s mm-hmm. well this is where i i like talk i i've talked before when i talked about john carpenter uh this is where i feel like you can start telling he's a fan of john carpenter or dean cundy and he you know that naturally takes dean cundy for you know zemeckis films and jurassic park later on but this uh, poltergeist, E.T., and Gremlins all look like they could have been shot by Dean Cundey, and they're not. Yeah. But they have his look to them that's similar to uh, Carpenter's work on, like, The Fog, The Thing, Halloween, um, showing up, Escape from New York, kind of has, but he adds suburbia to it. Um, what I find fascinating about Spielberg, and obviously we could do a 30 hour podcast just on Spielberg, but what I, what I always found interesting about Spielberg from a career point of view is that. A lot of the conventional wisdom about the kind of films that Spielberg makes mm-hmm. are predicated on E.T., you know, yep. one huge, massive mega hit, and a bunch of other films that, frankly, he didn't direct. You know, yeah. He didn't direct The Goonies. He nope. didn't direct uh, Poltergeist, contrary to Urban Legend. Uh, you know, he didn't direct Gremlins. Nope. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that, you know, Spielbergian pop culture, as we consider it, or even, you know, stuff that he you know, produced for some that Hook? Uh, well, that he directed, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying um, to think of like the kitty ones, but I'm like, he's yeah. got so much stuff in there that, uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm not a you know, I'm not a hook truther, but I think there is good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second act is just it was an overstuffed because we can production design nightmare. Yeah, before that was par for the courts, right? <laughs> um, but again, I, I, I not to go into my standard. 90s Spielberg thing, but my theory with Spielberg was always that if you watch Hook and Indiana Jones and then The Last Crusade back to back, to me, you see a portrait of a guy that is real, you know, A, he's forgiving his parents for whatever dysfunction he feels they brought upon him as a child. Mm-hmm. And with Hook, you're trying to figure out how he could avoid making the same mistakes. Gotcha. And if you take the ending of Hook at face value, where he basically quits his job and throws his phone out the window. And with the idea that at that point in time, he was not getting a ton of respect artistically or, you know, and, and even for directing commercial and, you know, acclaimed films like The Color Purple or, you know, A Part of the Sun. Mm-hmm. My theory was always that had Jurassic Park and Shudderness not gone bonkers bananas and given him the critical acclaim that he had always wanted and reasserted him as the top, the king of the blockbuster Deadpool. I think I don't think he would have retired, but I think he would have pulled back his, his filmmaking output. Been more the producer like George. Yeah. So, you know, he could be there with his, you know, to be a more active parent. No, I'm not saying he was a terrible father because Jurassic Park made a lot of money. I have no idea what it is, you know, that's not my business. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think 
you know, he was he was sort of coming to a point where if you know if he's not getting what he wants out of the movies he's making, and you got to remember, you know, Jurassic Park was his first genuine non-Indiana Jones hit since E.T. Mm-hmm. Hook was successful in terms of rate of return, but it got mixed reviews. Uh, the media was not kind to it, and it was seen as a mild financial disappointment. Right. You know, it made three hundred million dollars. Uh, I think it only did like one twenty domestic on a seventy budget. Now, by today's standards, that's huge, and of course, people made a lot of money from it. Um, but it was not seen as a success. You know, Jurassic Park was was frankly his comeback movie. Yeah, partially the extent that where, you know, if you you know, I was lucky enough to see it in a Thursday night screening, and this was nationwide. You know, this was advanced night screenings. You know, I went with my father and none of us had any idea how good it was going to be. Right. You know, the trailers were relatively cryptic and this was the early nineties. So you didn't have like a long lead review embargoes. Mm-hmm. You know, if you saw a movie on Thursday night, that was before the, you know, the critics ran their reviews on Friday morning. This is true. So you basically got to see it before the, not before the critics, but you got to see it before the critical consensus was formed and it knocked our socks off. Anyway, this is not a Steven Spielberg directed picture. No. So let's get back to so, Toby Hopper. <laughs> Hooper. Uh, Hooper but, so, so yeah, before we dig into some of the, the deliciousness of what this story entails and the effects and stuff of this movie, there's always been the, the there's been the, the poltergeist controversy of who directed poltergeist. And I have the easy, I will, I have the answer for you um, after years of research and all this stuff. The secret is with me. And I'll tell you who directed Poltergeist. Toby Hooper. <gasps> yes. I have no doubt in my mind that Toby Hooper directed this. I think there's a misperception or something. I've seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I've seen Salem's Lot. I've seen Life Force. I've seen Invasion of Vaders from Mars. I've seen the fun. The guy knows how to direct movies. Um, yeah. I've seen Gremlins. Nobody's accusing Spielberg saying that. That is no different than this one. I think what happens here is I think Toby Hooper's probably a more humble guy. And I think this was one of Spielberg's pet pro- He had to choose between this and E.T. He was really attached to them. This was originally one thing. It was originally Poltergeist and E.T. come from like the same script originally. And then he found two ideas and then this was one or the other, and he had to pick, and he couldn't direct both. Like they were option in different studios, they needed to get made, and he picked ET. Um, I think he made the right choice, but I think he was probably very involved on set. Like I think he showed up to check on this movie plenty. I think there were things he wanted to just do, and Toby Hooper's like, "You are the producer. You gave me this. Go ahead." Go, you know, I don't think Toby Hooper had an ego problem. I've seen him interviewed countless times on movies and stuff, on bonus features on Blu-rays and everything. He seems pretty humble. He, I'm sure he can command and stuff. I just think maybe you had some actors that were like didn't understand what was going on or were surprised that Toby would cede to Spielberg for things. There's rumor that like Hooper had a drug problem at this time, but. None that anybody else was having in the 80s around this time that I would think. I just know I heard he smoked cigars a lot and drank a lot of Dr. Pepper. But I'm 
I'm confident he directed this movie. Sure, Spielberg did Spielberg fix some things or change an idea that Hooper had? Sure, but I think Hooper probably played the role of, well, you're the boss. You are producing this movie. This is your script. This is, I'm in between. and you Because there's the producer, the director, the writer, and you have sandwiched me in there. And I think that's what it is. I think Hooper's competent. I see that your tell your tell that Hooper directed this is the clown toy. That is totally one hundred percent how Toby Hooper would direct something, and not Spielberg. And I think yeah. the the tree uh, that attacks is is Hooper. I think the pool with the mo- like I see so much Toby Hooper in this movie. There's no question to me that he directed this. Maybe there were some dramatic scenes between the family that maybe Spielberg had a better touch on, and he's can I, you mind if I? It, Toby's like, go ahead, because at the end of the day, we want to hit a good movie, a hit movie, and it's for the better. Not all directors can do that, but kudos to Toby Hooper if that's the truth. But I believe Toby Hooper, 1,000 million percent, is the director of this movie. I'm asking a question that I don't know the answer to, so bear with me. I mean, would I be correct to say that Toby Hopper, to end up in you know directing this film, was a come back slash step up from most of his post-Texas output. This was his, this was his big, his first big studio film. Um, he had, and he would go, um, he would wind up over at Canon films with a three picture deal from them that just kind of let them go crazy. But the, the idea was you're going to make another Texas chainsaw. And he did. He did, two, he did. He did. He did. Cause his other ones bombed. Yeah. Um, and then, Lots of his money went away for that Texas Chainsaw when he finally got to do it, but I think it's a sheer work of like midnight movie brilliance. That yeah, second it's one, fun. it's fun. It is a great movie, <laughs> and I think Life Force is a incredible, and I think Invaders from Mars is quite fun. Uh, Life Force is one of those films that I watched in the summer 2020 when we were all in lockdown, and I got so sick of, and this is not an artistic judgment, mm-hmm. so sick of the new. VOD set in a single house. It's all about trauma. It's all about yeah. metaphor or horror movies. That I started seeking out older outer space sci fi horror films that actually had a budget. And Life Force, is it good? Does it look like a movie that got a whopping $40 million mm-hmm. to play with in the 1980s? Absolutely. It's right. a huge movie. Yeah. Uh, then and now. I, I will also say, too, that. If stuff was so bad, and if Steven Spielberg didn't care for Toby Hooper or this was just such a thing, why does he hire him like four years later, five years later to direct Amazing Stories, which was his produced project? Why is he directing an episode of Tales from the Crypt, which was Robert Zemeckis, who was little Spielberg to people. Um, <laughs> he works with Spielberg on other things. Like, I just don't see this. Was there an initial, ex- I guess, expectation that the film was sort of sold as from the, the man who made you, brought you E.T. and the man that brought you the Texas Chainsaw Yes, Massacre. that's the trailer. That's oh, the trailer. Yeah. That's the trailer. To me, that would be a good, a great look. It's the guy who brought you Jaws and Close Encounters and the man who brought you Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre. That is, it's a great hook. Yeah. And it works. Um, and Is that why he brought him on? Because I assume Spielberg got to handpick we wanted to try. I mean, Spielberg was developing his little pool of understudies at this time. You got Zemeckis, you got uh, Joe Dante, you have Toby Hooper. Um, there's probably some others, but he is, he's, he's, he's starting to form his own gang. You know, 
Uh, that's who's who's bringing up. Uh, Zemeckis pans out best of them, but Dante has a pretty good career. Toby Hooper has a pretty undervalued career. Uh, as a guy, does what he, guys, he does what he wants. He doesn't yeah. want to sit around in the studio system. He doesn't. Um, he directs a good, healthy amount between TV and low-budget films, and some pan out, some don't. He did, he did the pilot of Freddy's Nightmares. Um, he no did, yeah, he did. Uh, <laughs> but that's a high end. I mean, at the time that that's being made, yeah, that's, that's... a high-profile project from Paramount. Um, and it wasn't Paramount did that. That's and then New, New Line, yeah, it was New yeah. Line Television. Um, and then like he did. John Carpenter's body bags. He helped out with that. But yeah, he's a, I, I just don't see this whole thing. But in this movie, it's great. The dread is 100% Toby Hooper. I really like that there's, with the restraint of Spielberg at the helm too, because how many people are going to show you what that world that Joe Beth William goes into looks like? How many directors? Well, they leave this to you. You sort of see it in the second one, don't you? It's been a while. It's called The Other Side, so you kind of, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> what is only true is right here in this one. Yes. The, the first one. That is produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, the second one is so like Toby Hooper doesn't come back. I don't even know if Spielberg produced the second one. But yeah, there's there's the restraint. There's fun without... There's no real... Like there's that scene where the guy rips his face off, which... Yeah, that's the gore highlight. That's the gore which highlight. I guess you can get away with because it's not real. I assume that was their explanation. That would make it yeah. PG-13 today at least. Oh yeah, I imagine it's one of the films that sort of, you know... You know, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, and you know, Joe's Temple of Doom that sort of cleared the PG 13. But even so, you know, I, I like what you, you know, but in terms of, you know, him having to be restrained by working in a kid friendly sandbox, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I like that. I like when, you know, for example, my favorite Eli Roth film by a mile is The House with the Clock in Its Walls. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Where he's forced to, you know, not forced, but he took the job. You know, he makes a PG rated horror film about a child with kids but it's great it's a genuinely yeah. good movie you know it features remarkably good work from kate blanchett and jack black and you know there's a reason kate blanchett's you know working on his you know video game movie borderlands yeah but, but there's you know and then and, and frankly my favorite Zack snyder film is legend of the guardians because i think again it sort of takes a lot of some of the stuff that he was playing with in 300 but but you know because you can't do the the, the ultra violence and the machismo, whatever becomes mm-hmm. an interesting deconstruction of the hero myth and the, the 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 bastion of fire and yada yada yada. It almost becomes sort of an answer to the you know is three hundred fascist conversation, right? Like maybe, but there's this too. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was one of the things I liked. Like I kind of like seeing. I mean, even you know, it's 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 it's. You know, a lot of comedians are sometimes will do their best work when they can't drop f bombs all the time. Right? Yeah, it's it's subverting oh. expectations. Like, yeah, this one you'd go into PG. You're not expecting a face to get ripped off. It's it's the, a scary picture. The corpses oh. inside the pool when it pops yeah. up; those are pretty frightening. There, things can work. Like, I always am like, I don't care about the rating. Do your thing. I, I've never really have. Like, it's I get some. Some franchises get known for their rating, and when they deviate. jump down, huh? Yeah, when no, they deviate no. or they force, they, there was a there was a period where they were forcing PG thirteens um, on things, but I think we're out of that now. So I don't fear a PG thirteen. I don't, you know, you don't need to be an R to impress me or thrill me. Like you could make a cool PG horror movie if you wanted. That's My issue great. has always been when movies that absolutely should be R-rated end up with PG-13s, like, kids shouldn't be watching this. Right. 
kids well, shouldn't be kids, kids shouldn't be watching you know jack reacher great movie but that's that's for adults what summer or, was you know, it that the, the wolverine came out and the conjuring oh, yeah. came out and it's like the conjuring got an r and yeah. there's nothing about the first conjuring that could have that should have been an r and Wol- the wolverine was a pg-13 but there was a lot in that though you know it's slicing and dicing movies that summer that yeah. like, this is this is becoming an issue yeah. and again whether you like the movies or not you know the lone ranger a man of steel white house down uh, the Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Some of those films I like quite a bit, actually. But there are films that Team White House down yes, should sir. be R-rated, if for no other reason than I don't necessarily want an unchaperoned seven-year-old watching this. Right. I don't think that's good for culture at large. And I know that makes me sound like a prude, but whatever. I mean, I, yeah. I think you know it's. It's different if the parents are watching it with them, but whatever. Right. That being said, this picture, and again, maybe it's because there are no deaths, you know, mm-hmm. unless I'm forgetting something, nobody actually dies in the film. They can get away with some pretty hardcore horror movie imagery mm-hmm. within the realm of without without getting an R rating. Is there any blood in the film? It's Aside been a from the face getting peeled off. There's Oh there's, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Um not like nothing above cuts and scratches that you yeah. get I t- like Zelda Rubenstein, that's a just a interesting person to throw in the movie that makes it even yeah. scarier just by who is this woman? Like and she's got a voice that's chilling and you add that with strobe effects and wind and and, and you oh. you've honestly practical effects that hold up quite well and look yes. scarier than anything CG could have done. And you know, to state the obvious, it has an excellent cast of, of grounded down to earth protagonists. Oh, that, I mean, Craig T. Nelson, this was kind of more discovery or breakout yeah. for him than it was. And Joe Beth Williams probably, too. Spielberg was trying to use uh, people that were in movies, but not ones that like everybody went to yet or yes. something like that. And I I love the relationship they have uh, as a couple. They're, you know, the opening scene, they're just sharing a joint in bed, rolling on, you know, having fun. And then, oh, crap, the kids came in and I'm high. And like, <laughs> it's it's quite fun. And I, yeah, definitely. I, jo Beth Williams is great. She's the complete force of this movie. And we discover everything with her and it works. But we it truly does, and then they take her from us, like which is great in the in the finale. Like, wait, we want her back. We want her back. <laughs> um, but no, it's it's quite fun. It this movie did have the the poltergeist curse, where strange deaths were unfortunately happening to people involved in the movie. Uh, Griffin Dunn's sister, who is uh, the older sister in this movie, she was was she killed before the movie even came out, or within. I believe so. Yeah. But don't quote me on that. Yeah, she was killed. Little girl, um, is it Heather O'Rourke? She she died of. She, um, she, I think she died like she had a bad reaction to like a a Tylenol or something. It, it was at shortly. It was before the third one came out. She had started was, in the third was, one. It needed reshoots, but she died before the reshoots. Yeah, she had two cardiac arrests. And yeah, mind, his kid was like you know ten years old or something. Yeah. And I believe there's like. Sure. A, some other crew member that died mysteriously or unfortunately, like some weird unfortunate, but yeah, there, there was the, the poltergeist curse. That was a fabled thing throughout the eighties and nineties. I think we've yeah. kind of gotten away from that and realized, but um, there, they looked at the production and they were fake bodies, not real bodies. It was built on top of. So I don't know if those <laughs> curse 
You didn't move the potters. Oh, the guy who plays his boss, real jackass. I love how well that guy. Like Spielberg just has an eye for like them, like the mayor from Jaws type that are just like smarmy suits that, yeah, you know, just really, really work at making you go, ah, these guys. But um, there's also a funny moment that wouldn't happen. Well, it doesn't really happen anymore. The watching the football game and the remotes. Switching people's TVs. Although I don't get the part. The guy falls out of... He falls off his bike going to watch the football game. Drops a beer. It's spilling everywhere. Yet he picks it up and brings it in the house and nobody's angry. I'm like, beer is <laughs> shooting everywhere, man. Uh, me, man. To answer a question, unfortunately, uh, Dominic Dunn was strangled by her ex-boyfriend. Okay. In October of 82. Strangled? Okay. Because um, that's a curse thing. Yeah. But yeah, uh, just men being terrible. Yeah, her her brother that was yeah the Griffin Dunn from uh, yeah. American Werewolf in London. Yeah, Poltergeist rocks, and I think the second one and third one aren't bad movies for what you're given. Like yeah, Poltergeist they certainly bring the production sequel, design. Yeah, they do the third one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the third one really has it go. Tom Skerritt's in that one, and uh, Nancy Allen. Um, they move on from the whole cast. They get the whole gang back together for the second one for a yeah. uh, victory lap. Um, and it's it's got its own creepiness. It goes its own direct. Like it's back. It's not one of those sequels. that's like, hey, let's do the same thing again. It does some weird stuff. And it was a solid hit. It made seventy five worldwide on a yeah. nineteen budget. So, so I mean, people showed up. Yeah. And then the third one did not. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know whether just nobody cared, or people didn't like the second one, or you know, frankly, the fact that most of the publicity revolves around Heatherall works and timely death probably didn't help. Yeah, that's probably probably what did that. You know, not to be disrespectful, this was not a Brandon Lee Crow situation. Here. No, no. Um, I think there was a talk about not even releasing the movie at the time yeah, too. Yeah, if I do recall. But yeah, the first one. You know, it's it's one of the classic examples of what I always talk about about you know rip off, don't remake. Mm-hmm. Because in 2011, we got uh, James Wan and Lee Winnell's uh, and it's, Jason Bloom's Insidious, which is great. Which is I like that. Basically, Poltergeist. Yeah, and it's very good. That's again, you know, rip off, don't remake. But it's Poltergeist. Oh, and it basically redefined the 2010s, you know, horror films overall. Yeah. Um. Meanwhile, in 2015, we got a remake of Poltergeist, which no one can remember a single thing about. Like if, if it didn't happen. Yeah. Yep. It's just like so. no one cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. Um, Meanwhile, Insidious Part Five is on the way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's why. Yeah. How which, many of those you know, remakes? Also, it kind of used Lynn Shay as sort of the quirky, weird Ghostbuster character, not unlike uh, in you know the Poltergeist films. Right. I mean, she's the star of the last two sequels. Yeah. That's like a great career reward for Lynn Shea. Like, it really is. I always enjoyed like... seeing her pop up in horror movies now and then, mm-hmm. or just, you know, pure genre flicks, new line or otherwise. Yeah. Obviously, she was a flight attendant in uh, Snakes on a Plane. Yeah. Well, I mean, now she gets like low budget lead roles. Yeah. And, and, yeah. I mean, she's a movie star. She's a star. Yeah. <laughs> She'll sell a, a movie to an independent distributor. Like, oh, well, we have yeah. Lynn Shea in it. Oh, from Insidious. Bam. Yeah. Became a bigger oh. star than her brother. <laughs> this, this one was a huge hit. Did 122 worldwide on an $11 million budget. Hmm. Um, it was just one of 
many very successful Spielberg produced pictures from mm-hmm. that era. It was a brand. Yeah. He well, looked, he, yeah, well he's off making like always and <laughs> he's producing uh, behind the scenes, but he's, we're uh, what, a year away from Temple of Doom. So that's where he's. Two years. Two years. Oh, yeah. It was 84, wasn't it? Yep, 83 is Jedi. They 83 is Jedi. Busy. That's right. Um, Which he was going to, but not. Really? That's who George wanted, but he was huh. a guild guy. And they couldn't use Fair it. Enough. Yeah. And I found it funny as of a recording, Steven Spielberg has recently cast David Lynch in his latest movie. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, the two guys George wanted for Star Wars Return <laughs> of the Jedi getting together. That's actually a good example of where you know the director directed the movie, even if the producer may have been sort of the omnipresent, you know, final boss of bosses type situation. Yeah. Because yeah, Irvin, you know, no no one argues that Irvin Kirshner didn't direct the Empire Strikes Back. Yes. Anyway. Exclusive reviews of the top 10 on Billboard's Pop, Soul, Country, and Album Charts for the week ending June 6, 1982. Now, here's Casey Kasem. Thank you, Charlie Tuna, and hello again, everybody. Welcome to America's Top 10. Let's get right to the action on the Billboard Pop Singles Chart and check out the 10 biggest hits this week. Off to the Casey Kasem Top 40, the the top quarter portion of the top 40. We don't go through the whole thing, but we have some changes at the bottom, but the top is relatively holding strong. Uh, Entering the top 10 is Rosanna by Toto. Rosanna. (laughs) Uh, Number nine, 65 Love Affair has slipped down a couple spots. Number eight, making its debut in the top 10 is Heat of the Moment by Asia. Number seven, Always on My Mind by Willie Nelson. Number six, Don't You Want Me uh, by The Human League. It's moving slowly up. And the top five is the exact same as it was last week. Uh, The Other Woman by Ray Parker Jr. 8675309, Jenny by Tommy Two-Tone. I've Never Been to Be, Charlene Duncan. Don't Talk to Strangers by Rick Springfield. He just cannot jump up to number one. We've climbed and he's stalled. And hanging out at number one for the fourth week in a row, or for the fourth week in a row, at number one, Ebony and Ivory, Paul McCartney, and Stevie Wonder. <laughs> That's my shitty Casey Kasem impression. <laughs> hey, Scoob! But yeah, so that's Casey Kasem's top ten for this week. The wonders of the universe, the dangers of space, the challenge of the unknown, the courage of a warrior, the vengeance of a madman. Kill him. The seed of new life, the hand of death, the plan of a genius, the wrath of Khan. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, rated PG. Now showing at a theater near you. Now for our big... Movie of the week, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Directed by Nicholas Meyer, written by Harv Bennett, Jack B. Sowers, based on the characters and stories of Gene Roddenberry. Starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Ricardo Montalban, Kirstie Alley, B.B. Besh, George Takai, Nichelle Nichols, or it's Takei, sorry, George Takei, Nichelle Nichols, James Duhon, Walter Koenig, Paul Winfield, and Merritt Buttrick as David. With Had this... you seen Star Trek before this show? Oh, no, never ever. 
It was my uh, first time as well. Uh, with the assistance of the Enterprise crew, Admiral Kirk must stop an old nemesis, Khan Noonien Singh, from using the life-generating Genesis device as the ultimate weapon. I love this fucking movie. I do. Um, I, I'm just going to sit and gloat about it. This one and Star Trek VI have something special going on for them. They tap, they're tap. they both Nicholas Meyer films. He knows where it's at. Uh, these are in their two of the best Star Trek stories ever told, TV, movies. Um, there's a real magic when he touches it. And the thing is, like, he was not a Star Trek fan. And sometimes I think we've gotten away from now. It's always like, only fans should make this. Only fans should review this. And, like, no, your left field and your person from outside can sometimes bring in and see something you don't, which you would want, or bring a new flavor to it. I don't think Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan would be loved in today's fan climate like the legend, the legend it is now. I agree. And I, what I think it's fascinating about the I mean, there's obviously a lot lots to discuss about the picture, but... It is interesting in that, you know, there's there's a conversation and there has been a conversation for the last decade or so about to what extent Star Trek should be a pulpy modern day action packed blockbuster entertainment versus something more cerebral or more, you know, navel gazy. And I say that not as an insult. And I mean, hell, that's what Star Trek in the Darkness is about. That's one of the reasons I like it because I think that that's it's literally about the push pull of what Trek should be and the, you know, the, you know, in this modern era. But, you know, going back to 1981, there's maybe 82, Star Trek Wrath of Khan is very much the let's blockbusterize this franchise. Yeah. You know, it basically was, you know, it was following up the very cerebral, very slow burn, special effects driven, you know, visuals over character you know, expository, and I like it, but, you know, Robert mm-hmm. Wise Star Trek, the motion picture, which, which was very, which was successful, but it wasn't exactly beloved. It's, it's Sorry, Star it Trek. Like, it was Star Trek by way of 2001. Everybody yes. going to it that summer was like, Star Wars had changed everything and Star Trek decided to still be Star Trek, but pull from something else, which was yes. now dated. Uh, people didn't like, I think going back to it, you're like, well, this is not as bad as the reputation. It's very... Star Trek. It's like almost the last time Star Trek will be Star Trek until, well, I, Voyage Final Home Frontier. is very, uh, <laughs> yeah, Voyage Voyage Home, Final Frontier. Very, I mean, ideals, but this is like straight up Roddenberry, straight up Star Trek. But it now gets to have the budget of and and flair of two thousand one. Yeah, that's, it was, that's 40, awesome. you know, it was yeah. like a forty million dollar picture when that was yeah. one of the most expensive movies ever made. And you know, I, yeah, I, I like it quite a bit. <laughs> Partially because of that, because it's you know it stands out of what came after Star Trek Two. Ironically, you know it basically it's a cheap movie using repurposed sets. It is, yeah, it's Corman esque. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it only exists because they were able to do it on the cheap. And so is Six. Um, the Undiscovered Country yeah. used Next Generation sets on the television show. Yeah, another way of you know sort of recovering after a an ill ill received cerebral. Star Trek picture. Yeah. I, I don't think the final Frontier is terrific, but I, I, at least it's, it's going for it. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is a picture that basically the pitch was, what if you boat drama, but Star Trek? Well, and let's, yeah. let's, uh, let's also like, let's actually treat them like their ages. Unlike the previous one, which kind of was in denial about how yes. much older they were. Yeah. And that, that, that's, that's, it's, it's interesting to step that, you know, 
the films, and we're talking about the first six, six or seven here, you know, before we get to the next generation group, mm-hmm. really use their age as sort of a you know the core narrative hook of the franchise. Yeah. In terms of, you know, in a way that frankly still makes them stand out. And it was funny. And I, I liked that scene quite a bit, but it was amusing watching Chris Pine kind of play that beat at the beginning of Star Trek Beyond when he's like, you know, 35 years old or something. Yeah. But again, it makes sense in the movie. It's his age, his father died, yada, yada, yada. But it was kind of funny. It's like, okay, you're, you're still like a spring chicken here, dude. Right. But again, it makes sense in the film as a payoff, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, Wrath of Khan is much more of a, let's make a Star Trek action adventure picture. Um, it's a war melodrama. It's a, you know, it's a riff on Moby Dick. It's a chess match between two adversaries that never actually, you know, or on screen together. Nope. And uh, amazingly, it's and this may be you know the budget or whatever. It's a very small picture. Yeah. I mean, they go into space, they get their ass kicked by Khan, they beam down to the planet, they come back to the planet, and then they defeat Khan, and that's the movie. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, that of course leaves lots of time for character work. Yeah, it's and, all character work. Yeah. 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 But it's it's it it when I watch it, I'm surprised. It feels big. It doesn't feel small, but it's, 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 and, you know, maybe you can, or one of the things I like about the Dark Knight, which is that it tells a very small story on a very large canvas. Yeah. Well, and, and it's very true to the resources and what Khan can do. It doesn't yes. superhuman him. He is in control of a ship, and like that's all he can get. Like he manages to hijack a ship that is by a station and, and just hangs out there waiting for hopefully Kirk and he gets one strike at him and this is it. Yep. This is what he could do. A lot of it's good meat. Like Ricardo Montalban, I'll say like this performance is very, I think special in any, because he manages to have a line between dramatics and camp that is just almost impossible to achieve. Like he never crosses the line of camp and he never gets too overly dramatic and it works brilliantly. Like, it's never it's never quite a cartoon. It hints, but you know, it also has some dramatic chops too. There's weight to it. It's a really interesting performance. And that's why we always talk about Khan is it's Montalban, not the not the character. Yeah. It's Montalban. Yeah, and that's that's I mean, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is fine in Star Trek and the Darkness. But I think that was, you know, a mistake in terms of as you said, it's the actor, it's not the abstract character. Mm-hmm. And you know this was six years before Die Hard, so you didn't see a lot of larger than life cinematic villains like this, especially outside of maybe the James Bond films or some of the you know horror pictures. Mm-hmm. But even that, I mean, you know, this is before Freddy. Yep. And this is in a time when, you know, I mean, regardless of what you think of the films, you know, for your eyes only is not known for its villain. Yeah. You know, Octopussy is not known for its villain. I guess you have Lex Luthor and Zod yeah. at this time. Yeah. Yeah, the comic book pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, especially back then, Khan really stood out as a larger-than-life villain. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly he's more melodramatic than even, like, you know, someone like Darth Vader, mm-hmm. who, you know, is subtle, comparatively speaking, for obvious reasons. And even if you haven't seen the episode The Space Seed, and this is all you see, it works. Oh, like, yeah. It I mean, it's, still it's, works. It's, when you watch this first and then you watch Space Seed, you're like, Really? They picked that. This wow, is the one they, they picked. Uh, they uh, they were onto something there. They got lucky. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they grounded it a bit. They made it like, like this is yeah. basically, hey, you have to pay, for, like, no more. You have to stop right now because your past is coming up in more ways than one. Yeah. Um, And you have to face it, Kirk. You have, this is what, you know, being a cowboy has, this is what it becomes later. And yeah. it's quite good. It's, it's quite without having to put, uh, it's kind of the, what Indiana Jones goes through in Crystal Skull a bit. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, to better degrees, uh, a better movie, but like it's that same idea of you're at a point where things are being taken away, but things are still added. There's things, you know, there's still stuff to strive for, but um, at least for one movie, David. At least for one movie, David. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whatever. I always thought that was a really interesting choice for yeah. part three. But, you know, unfortunately, you can't kill Spock and you can't kill, you know, the female lead. So who else is there? Yeah. And it's, it's funny. It's another situation where a bad choice in one movie actually pays off really well in a future installment. Like you're going to pretend that you were planning all the time to have that pay off in Star Trek Six. Which pay off? The day of David dying. Oh, yeah. That yeah, drives- yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, no, because he basically has to confront. This one's confronting the the past of what the movies were, and then six is the past of what the or sorry, what the show was, and then six is like, okay, let's do this again, but with what the adventure you've been through in the movies, kind and of. And without getting too much into six, what I like about it is it it was a little ahead of its time in that it was really the first mainstream anyway, big blustery franchise picture to deal with metaphorically okay what what happens to all these people that spent their life fighting the cold war right you know the the russians are our friends or they're not a threat the cold war is over where do i put my hate yeah no exactly Um, yeah and i know there was some controversy at the time by having a character like kirk be a little bit racist yeah um and you know but you know again it's sort of a situation of you know is it good for the you know even if it's not great for the ip it's a good for the movie right and, and it should always be good for the movie yeah that's my non-fanboy thing i give me the great mo- i'm a fan of a yeah. series but give me the great movie first this you know you make you make the series good by making the movies good yeah i mean forgive me for getting into this discourse but that was my thought coming out of the last jedi back in the days you know i was huge on the force awakens like this movie reestablishes star wars as a top tier franchise by being so freaking good yeah and i have to assume that had star trek six come out in today's discourse yeah (laughs) right well had Um, this one come out like these are the chances that get made that make the legends and things we worship today like even there they kind of you know with star trek too i i they did kind of cop out you know i even when i was I would have rolled my eyes at the whole remember stuff. It's like, oh, yeah. come on, just own it, you bastards. <laughs> I, I think uh, the thing I like, though, even if they're going to, when they bring Spock back, they don't bring him back just like, hey, guys, I'm back. He spends three, like, you don't see him in three for the longest time. And in yeah. four, he is not the same. Like, No, he's not. It subverts expectations on what, could have just been like, whoo, I'm back, guys. Thanks. Like, it's not easy. It's not what you were expecting. Like, it's the extent, best way to do a dumb thing, I guess. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. 
and I think to a certain extent, part of the conflict in six is, is Spock has kind of made peace with his new version of himself, while Kirk is the one with the existential crisis. It, it yeah, um, and and the thing is, like, too, like, is this a favorite Star Trek movie? And people are like, oh, Spock dies. It's great. Are they? Do they love it now because they know three happens and Spock doesn't really die? Just like Empire's the favorite Star Wars because they have the comfort of knowing that Jedi follows. I think so. It's okay to be dark when you know what the 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 next and, one's there to you comfort know, you. And I do think that was where some of the backlash for Last Jedi came from. The idea yeah. that you know the the film ends on a note of. You know the battle keeps going, but we're probably going to lose. You mm-hmm. know we're losing. We're, we're you know we fight till the you know, and hopefully the next generation will win. And it was full and, of a generation of people that didn't live from eighty to eighty four wondering. Yeah, and you know it came out you know in late two thousand seventeen when you know maybe the progress maybe the arc of history is not tilting ever upward. Right. But getting back to Star Trek two, yeah, it Con! is. <laughs> there you go. Um, having said that, the the you know Kirk's fi- you know Spock's final scene is excellent. Oh yeah, it is a wonderful dialogue scene between the two of them mm-hmm. that plays off of you know thirteen you know six sixteen years. How long they've been around that point? Yeah, sixty six to this is eighty to sixteen years. Yeah, yeah, which now feels like nothing. I mean, Batman Begins is seventeen years old. By the right, way. exactly. Uh, but you know, it's a uh, <laughs> and you know the Star Trek, the first movie was supposed to be sort of you know it's been ten years showing off the air. Now we're mm-hmm. back to the movie. Time flies when you're getting old. And I think people forget too. Star Trek is the greatest cult property ever. Mm-hmm. It was not a hit show. It only ran three seasons back then. Though you could get a hundred episodes out of three seasons, yeah. it ran just shy of a hundred, I believe. Um, the but, third season was a was tough to come by. They had to pull teeth. Yeah, and. It was a cult show. They brought it back as an animation in the seventies mm-hmm. for a like a year and a half. Like it's a cult property, and now it's like a an a IP. It's a top notch IP, but it it's it's a miracle. Like it was a cult property. You were a dork for liking Star Trek. Yeah, you were pulling. You couldn't find. You were watching reruns, the same thing over and over. Collecting books and stuff. Like it was not like. Oh, this is the greatest thing ever. This was like, I guess we can dip in and like, if Star Wars doesn't happen, Star Trek maybe doesn't come out as fast and it doesn't come back like you think it is. No, it might not come back at all. Yeah. Because I can't, you know, regardless of, of the motion picture basing itself upon 2001, I can't imagine Star Trek movie even comes out without Star Wars. No. And that's the weird thing is, you know, as much as we all talk about then and now, as as you know, Star Trek has sort of got Star Wars's nerdier brother, little brother. Star Trek Motion Picture broke the opening weekend record in 1979 with 12 yeah. million dollars. That would that record was defeated by the domestic opening of Superman Two right. in December of '81 with 14.1 million dollars. And then on this weekend in 1982, Star go- Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan yeah. broke the opening weekend record with 14.3 million. It's yeah. not till Return of the Jedi, which was the first Star Wars movie to open wide, that you know a Star Wars film breaks the opening weekend record. Mm-hmm. Movies were different till uh, what Batman? Yeah, that Batman was... was yeah. That's that's when the game. Although you know it, it's it's 
in that month, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade broke the mm-hmm. opening weekend record with 27 million over a Friday, Sunday frame. Mm-hmm. I think 37 over the Memorial Day weekend. You know, two, three weeks later, Ghostbusters 2 opens with $29 million. Gotcha. And then a week later, Batman does 43. And then it's off to the races. So yeah, you know, at for the first two or you know, really the first two Star Trek movies, it was cream of the crop. It really wasn't until three. Well, really, it wasn't until I'd say four, but that was the only one that made a hundred million dollars in the original one. So that one, that would, you know, it's it's I guess it's not till five, which came out in the summer of 89, which is Batman, Lethal Weapon 2, and you know, the the new wave. Mm-hmm. That Star Trek, along with James Bond, sort of becomes an also ran. I should write about that at some point. Ideas, ideas. <laughs> Watch it drop the week this episode drops. Yeah, I might do that. We've got time. So yeah, but, uh, I'll, I'll let you babble because I've been babbling. Yeah, no, I, I rather I think it's hard sometimes to talk about movies that you love and you're just like, blah, blah, blah. This is great. And this is great. And this is great. But this, I mean, it's all been said before and it's true with this. It's the drama between the aging Kirk. Uh, McCoy is always great. He's my, like one of my faves. Uh, DeForest Kelly's wonderful. I, and I actually think, you know, uh, uh, Carl Urban's a pretty darn good McCoy as well. Just, Watching this crew, the, the the score on this one's fantastic too, and and it's kind of crazy for how big this movie is, how well revered it is. Every time I start it, I always forget that it is like blue text on star background for the opening credits. It's nothing yeah. grand. It's just like here you go, um, Star Trek Two, Arathakand, uh, William Shatner. I don't know, like and it's just kind of. It's like nonchalant about starting. Um, this has the Kobayashi Maru, which is an interesting thing for this movie, which becomes this lore thing later on. That like it's like that's the important thing that a lot of later Star Trek creators would take and think was like this huge deal, but it really only holds value for this movie. Like no, it's just a fun callback every other time, but. Yeah, but or it's, a tired it's, callback, but this is it means something in this movie. It does, you know, and to, you know, to state the obvious, it's Kirk coming to terms with the fact that there are sometimes no win situations. Yeah. Um one thing I god damn it, I lost my train of thought. What you know, like you know, ironically, like the Saw series, this is another franchise where part two is the one that sort of sets the template for the franchise as a whole. Yeah. In terms of production design, in terms oh. of costumes, in terms of the storylines. Well, they want this to happen in the next one dearly when they let's do Klingons. Uh, yeah. Christopher Lloyd versus Kirk. And, oh, he's going to be bad because he's going to kill Kirk's son. Yeah. Like, that's that's a, the, the and they blow up the Enterprise. That's like, oh, which is a big moment. It's it, And yeah. I think three is better than its reputation of being an odd numbered film. Although it's Nimoy's first time directing and it looks a little more TV than you have between two and four and one at the time. Cause he'll direct four and he'll do good at four because guess what? It's comedy and yeah. Leonard Nimoy loves to direct <laughs> him a comedy. Four was the most popular one growing up. The, the, everybody knew the whales like your grandmother saw Star yeah. Trek four. Like it did $109 million was, Thanksgiving, 1986. Yeah. And um, everybody like, hello, computer. Everybody looking for the vessels, the nuclear vessels. It's weird because that's one that you know, on its face, 
is a Star Trek film for people that don't usually care about Star Trek. It's all the stuff they've but, heard about Star Trek. Exactly. And but it only is that funny if you're aware of at least some of the tropes. Yeah. And it's another one that doesn't really have a antagonist. Yeah. Which is true to Trek. And but which, they, do, they do have to save the Earth, which seems to be a, uh, you know, a, a pull. Mm-hmm. And the ones where the Earth is in peril and do better than the ones where it's not. Yep. Um, but yeah, Leonard Nimoy's directing. I mean, he made them money at Paramount. And they're like, oh, well, what do you want to direct now, Leonard? And then Shatner comes in and is like, well, I get a direct too. And the series wraps up quickly after that. Uh, they bring back Meyer, um, who is, yeah, just the unlikely hero of Star Trek. He probably saved it because the reputation from Star Trek, the motion picture, was it Star Trek, the slow motion picture. People weren't, <laughs> despite the movie making a ton of money. Oh, yeah, it was very, I, mean, I don't know, profitable. It cost $40 million to make. I'd assume it was oh, yeah. generally well-liked. It was some yeah. of the more hardcore vocal writers and nerds that d- didn't like it. I, going back to it, I every time I revisit it, I like it more. I think the director's cut, it's one of the few director's cuts that's shorter because yeah. Wise went back and tightened things up. Uh, and make it flow a little better. Uh, but I think it's, it's a film that, like any number of the less conventional James Bond pictures, has aged well by virtue of being the odd man out in an existing franchise. Right. You know, if it's 1979 and you think this is the only Star Trek movie you're going to get, mm. you know, yeah. you might not be satisfied for various reasons. Right. But, you know, X number of years later, when there's you know, 13 of them now, it sort of stands out as the one that, you know, the, 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 the existential one, mm-hmm. the one that you watch while you're stoned. Yeah. One does it's, that kind of thing. It's a visual. Yeah. It's a visual Marvel. Uh, there's a lot of cool shows. I just reviewed uh, the 4k set for the first four movies last year. And this one stands out. It's the best. I mean, yeah. that, 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 that one is the best looking one. Uh, one of them, um, this one's no slouch here too, uh, but it's got more traditional blockbuster look to it. I love the uniforms in this movie as well. These are very cool uniforms. Um, but no, it's this one hits emotionally. It hits with thrills. It's got every. It's everything. Like I just and it's funny. Like you mentioned, it's a very small movie, but it feels huge. It feels uh, it's, humongous. It's, it's a small movie that feels like a mainstream course correction. The kind of which fans are now always complaining about yeah and i i certainly sympathize especially when you know you spend 200 million dollars on a trek movie and it's clearly not going to be the next mm-hmm. guardians of the galaxy right but um, that's another conversation yeah. i mean right now there's a case to be made the most pure star trek thing is something McFarlane's the orville it is if that ever comes back it is coming back they just released the first i know scene i'll believe looks, it when i watch it i will believe it it'll when be I airing watch right now it. scott it'll be airing oh, right, right now we'll be we can't re- really listening can't to this podcast it got delayed again ah! McFarlane. <laughs> i will uh to wrap up the wrath of con talk um it does have one of my favorite movie posters of all time which i have rocked uh, in my living spaces for a while now, but I, I love, absolutely love the Wrath of Khan poster. Uh, it's got a great font, start, like it's hand drawn, it's beautiful. I, I love that poster. I like actually all of the first five Star Trek movies have great posters. Undiscovered Country's got a, no, Undiscovered Country's got a pretty cool one too, but the original Cruise posters 
are awesome. Like Search for Spock's got a great one. Um, the motion picture's cool. Like they, I love that artwork that they have on those. But yeah. Hey everybody, we're not right to the box office report yet. Sorry to fake you out. I just wanted to make a couple announcements here. Uh, one, just a reminder, we have the Patreon page now. I haven't been pestering about it, have I? Mm, not much, but patreon.com slash Brandon Peters Show. If you want to go donate, you want to go help out with the summer of 82 at 40, recoup some of the little costs we've had going throughout this. It hasn't been such a cheap one, and it's been a lot of hard work. Go ahead, go there, patreon.com slash Brandon Peters Show. Anything you want to chip in, that's great. If not, cool. I still enjoy your listening the most. That's why I appreciate Listen, share, tell your friends. And there are goals there. So if you want us to do some of the things that are in the goals, go look them up. Be like, ooh, I'd like to hear Brandon talk about that. Or I'd like to hear Brandon and Scott do that. Or something like that. Go there. Help make the goal. Next This weekend at the Indianapolis Convention Center, Indianapolis, Indiana, I will be a guest at PopCon. It's a pop culture convention. It's got a lot of cool people, people from Yellowstone. It's got Orville people, Supernatural people, a lot of anime people, just tons of of people and YouTube celebrities and all sorts of fun stuff. I'll be there um, the whole weekend. I have a booth. Um, you come see me. Come say hi. Let's talk podcasts. Let's talk movies. Let's do stuff like that. Uh, on Saturday, Jessica Allsman, voice of the show, my dear friend, she'll be joining me uh, for that day, and we'll be doing a live show uh, that afternoon, uh, time and whatever, uh, TBD. But if you come to it, uh, there's a good chance you'll be part of the show, and you can hear yourself on the Brandon Peters Show um, in the week following uh, PopCon, which uh, will be, you know, we'll still be doing Summer of 82 at 40, so you can hear yourself possibly next week or the week after, but got another fun live show. Killed it last year. Please come say hi. PopCon's a fun time. It's one of the best times of the summer, but I'll get back to Scott and his box office report. Just wanted to jump in here. Hope you're enjoying Summer of 82 at 40. It's a blast. I love it. Really proud of it. And also, don't forget, patreon.com slash Show. Thank you in advance. But now, uh, as we already we already talked about this, but the box office report for uh, this June through four, four through six weekend, which yes, Scott, you mentioned Star Trek Two was the king, breaking opening yes. weekend record with fourteen point three. Earned a massive fourteen point three four opening week million dollar opening weekend eventually earning $79 million domestic, $3 million less than Star Trek The Motion Picture. In terms of tickets sold, there wouldn't be a movie to sell more tickets than The Motion Picture until the 2009 reboot. Oh, okay. In second place, Rocky III, with a solid 19% drop. That's actually really good coming off a holiday. Hmm. Uh, that and now. Uh, with $10 million for a $31 million set, uh, 10-day total, uh, it would eventually earn around one hundred twenty-five. Poltergeist opened in number three in 890 screens. Comparatively, Star Trek II opened in 1,691 screens. Poltergeist would still earn approximately $6.9 million. Just for reference, the per screen average for Poltergeist was $7,749, while Star Trek Wrath of Khan was $8,850. So it might have had a big pull had it doubled the theaters. But the biggest per screen average was once again Rocky Three, mm-hmm. which on you know earned you know, ten million dollars on nine hundred and thirty nine screens. Dang, 
which is something I look forward to following over the next few weeks. That's yeah. interesting. Panky Panky made $3.6 million on 1,200 screens. Uh, it would eventually top out at, I think, $9 million? Yes, $9.8 million. And then fifth place, Conan the Barbarian with 2.7 for a $33 million total. Uh, visiting hours. Oh, that's right. Visiting hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shatner twice in the top yeah. 10. <laughs> top, twice in the top So he almost said the top five. Did he? Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, with $2.6 million in weekend two with a $9.5 million total. Uh, and then perennial old Porky's. Porky's! Point I need to watch. Yes. Which did $2.5 million on its 12th weekend for an $89 million running cube. Uh, Sword and the Sorcerer did 1.9. Dead Men Don't Wear Played in Weekend Plaid in Weekend 3 did 1.3. And The Road Warrior. Uh, playing on just 478 screens, earned a million dollars in weekend three for a $7.5 million total. Hey, and that's all of them making a million dollars. Yeah. And gone are the leftovers from the Academy Awards. Victor Victoria. Chariots of Fire. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Chariots of Fire, Victor Victoria. They're gone. Poor Not an Oscar winner, but hey. Yeah. But yeah. So, now, if it was today, then Jimmy Kimmel would go on a show complaining that uh, Porky's didn't get a Best Picture nomination. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so our uh, only non-summer movies still in the top 10 are Porky's and Sword and the Sorcerer, which I'm just intrigued. Like, Sword and the Sorcerer, I I need to watch This it. is a just a hanging around. And it was there before we even started this. So it had been... Yeah, I mean, it's... People it's were, a movie that has very little in terms of a, a footprint. Yeah. It did, about, it did about as well as... Uh, a lot of people saw it. It kept and going it to see was it. One of the rare breakout, genuine mainstream successes for Albert uh, Pyon. Yeah, who has unfortunately been was in the news at this time. Basically, he is an older man. He's suffering from dementia. And apparently, he got away from his caretakers, but he was found safe and sound. But you know, he's got a, a filmography as long as my arm in terms of you know B movie cult pictures. Uh, you know, uh, Captain America, Nemesis. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so forth and so forth. Brain did he smasher. do Cyborg? He did do Cyborg, yeah. which actually started a John Claude Van Damme picture that started life as a Master of the Universe sequel. Right, right, and you can so, you can kind of tell in like sort of yeah. the production design and stuff. Wait, but... Once you know that, it stands out. Yeah, but no, I, I he had at least one decent mainstream hit. Right. Yeah, um, that, that's just fascinating. Porky's and Sword of the Sorcerer have fascinated me here with this. And yeah. uh, our Sean Connery movie has been MIA. Are like our first films that we talked about. Not that, no, none of them are in the top ten. But Porky, Sword and the Sorcerer are still there. Um, and those were in the top ten when we started. So it's gonna be sad to see them go in the coming weeks, unless Porky's makes a resurgence at some point. But tempted to look and cheat, but I'm not going to. Yes, but that'll do it for this first weekend of June now in our second month of these. Scott, thank you for joining me, as always. Always a pleasure. Before we sign out, let people know where they can keep up with you. Uh, Forbes.com. Please Google some variation of The Ticket Booth, Scott Mendelson, and Forbes. Uh, I'm at Twitter at at Scott Mendelson, at Scott Mendelson, and that's pretty much it. All right. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. Scott and I, next week, we phone it in or uh, phone home. Phone home as we score tonight with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer movie when we take a look at the second weekend of June in the summer of 1982. Until then, stay film positive.
thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. The Summer of 82 at 40 and News of the Moment themes by Press Maxson. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.